please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 9, where we're at today and have been for the past 35 weeks. I think we're over halfway done, so there is light at the end of the tunnel. As we go to God's Word, let's go to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for not leaving Your people alone and by ourselves to find our way home, but You have given us Your Word and Spirit, a chart, a map, and a compass to get us home through these trials. Indeed, Father, it's through trials that we just sang that you uh, free us from self and pride and to break our schemes of earthly joy that we may find in you our all. And so, Father, now as we gather before you in the name of Jesus, we ask that your word would be our rule Your Holy Spirit be our teacher, and your greater glory be our supreme concern, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, you know that here at Grace and Peace, generally, if not almost all of the time, we go through books of the Bible consecutively, because it's easy and dangerous to take a verse here and there and put together kind of... A message. It's, it's appropriate at times. There are times of national tragedy and difficulty and times that we need to, as it were, do a topical message. But generally, um, we preach through all of a book. And we've done Old Testament and New Testament books because the Bible is one book with one message. And children, the message of the Old Testament would be promises made. And the message of the New Testament, promises kept. It's one book, but there's 66 books, and they were given to us in books. And so, uh, as you know, in real estate, it's location, location, location. In Bible study, in preaching and teaching, it's it's context, context, and context. And so, um, here is the payoff. The payoff is uh, a day like today where I do not get to skip sin and hell. And next week, I don't get to skip divorce either. It's right in front of us. Um, Paul speaks that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable, is useful. Paul mentions in Acts 20-27 that he did not hesitate, he did not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. So as we begin, um, let me ask a couple of questions. What do you think about sin? What do you think about hell? Now, if surveys are to be believed today, many people reject those ideas, sin and hell, altogether. Or if they don't reject it, they distort it to an unrecognizable um, uh, form. And yet, sin and hell are the major subjects of our passage this morning. And you'll notice that this was not invented by Calvinist or Puritan theologians, but rather declared by Jesus himself, who spent more than anyone in the scriptures talking about sin 
and in particular talking about hell. Well, where are we in Mark? Let's get our bearings. It's always good to reorient ourselves through those three questions and answers. Mark's shortest catechism, as it were. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? And how should someone respond to the person and work of Jesus? Well, just recently we were on the continental divide of Mark, where Mark split into two halves. And that continental divide was where Peter confessed Christ and then Christ called people to follow him. He called people to the cross. Well, recently in this call to discipleship, this call to follow Jesus, we've seen the disciples arguing with one another about who's the greatest. And last week we saw the disciples pursuing the wrong kind of narrowness by trying to stop others from serving in the name of Jesus. Well, last week we noticed that we included verse 42 as the conclusion of our passage last week. And in our passage there, Jesus speaks to his disciples on the seriousness and the consequences of sin. And it follows from everything that he had been saying. The disciples were thinking about their status, their position in the kingdom. And instead, they should be completely focused on the needs of others. They should not be thinking about how powerful they are going to be in the church. Jesus is warning them against pride. And that's why we saw and heard last week, verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Instead of pride, instead of seeking position, they should be intensely seeking to help the little ones, the little ones in their care. In 42 that I just read, Jesus says that causing one of these little ones to sin is a terrible thing. Now in verses 43 through 48, Jesus will tell us that this is certainly the case because sin itself is a terrible thing. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to read verses 43 through 50. And you may notice in your Bibles, where did verse 44 and where did verse 46 go? So our reading, by the way, is, is shorter than it would be otherwise. Well, apparently, most all of the scholarship understands this as those two verses were owing to a later scribe inserting uh, what was uh, also in verse 43. Eight, which is a quotation from Isaiah 66, 24. He liked it so much that he added it after each of those repetitions on sin and hell. But most of the early Greek manuscripts that we have of Mark retain this Isaiah quotation only at verse 48. And that's a brief reason why you don't see verses 44 and 46 in many translations. Join with me now as I read verse 43 to the end of the chapter. Jesus is speaking. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. 
And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So let's now join Jesus and his disciples and Mark with his first century Roman Christians in the classroom and consider first the seriousness of sin. Here we see drastic action is needed in response to sin. One commentator writes that this, these dreadful expressions call almost for reflection more than they do for exposition. Drastic images of amputation, of tearing out We, in other words, must be ruthless with sin. No compromise, no toleration, unconditional surrender we demand of sin. This language is full of metaphors, pictures, and hyperboles. But they're typical of Jesus. It's exaggerated language to highlight its urgency, its importance. Now, the fact that a saying here is not meant to be taken literally is not in any way to diminish or discount its importance. However, if anything, the hyperbole, the exaggeration, enhances the teaching that obedience to God is more important than even those things that we believe are most indispensable to us, our hands, our feet. Our eyes. Here we see the relative value of physical life versus the absolute value of spiritual life. Jesus is deliberately using the most severe language to stress that sin is to be opposed at all cost. Jesus, in other words, is saying it's better to repent no matter how painful and to believe, to follow Jesus at whatever cost then perish in hell. As any Christian knows, however, sin is always on duty. It's a permanent guest in our lives. It may at times seem dormant, but it is not dead. Drastic action is needed. But notice it's drastic action against a comprehensive Sin. Look at the threefold description of sin. Sinful behavior. The hand and the feet. Sinful desires. The eyes. Indeed, how do the feet and hands get direction if not from the eyes? Some have observed we see in these hand, foot, and eye what we do, where we go. And what we view, actions and thoughts. Indeed, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount gets to the heart of the matter. Yet, I want us to 
acknowledge and notice that even drastic action is not enough. The image in our mind's eye that we should see in reading and hearing these words of cutting off limbs, no matter what, if that's done, it's still not enough. Literally cutting off one's hand or leg or tearing out one's eye would not resolve the cause of the problem. Because you see, a one-handed, one-footed, one-eyed person can still be tempted by sin and indeed does sin. Back in Mark chapter 7, Jesus has already told us that it is our heart that causes us to sin. And there is no way we can cut that out. Jesus, with this description, with piling up exaggerated language over and over again, Jesus is telling us that our situation and the way out of our situation is humanly impossible. Sin is serious. Sin has consequences. In particular, the one consequence that Jesus emphasizes in our passage is that sin leads to the horror of hell. Here Jesus seeks to motivate us to fight against sin by one great concern. Jesus brings to bear the fear of hell. There are a lot of motivations as to why we should not sin. To honor God, to glorify God, to, to worship God. Here, Jesus is specifically going to the fear of hell. I was thinking about Joseph. Remember when Joseph was tempted as he's serving the house of Potiphar? What does Joseph do? He runs out and says, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Joseph has got his eyes on the Lord. And he knows that he couldn't do that. But here... Here, my friends, the motivation that Jesus is providing for his people is not love for God, honoring God. To be sure, it is. But here, it's, he's putting before his hearer and us now, his reader, the fear of hell. Again, there's many motivations not to sin. I heard recently of a friend share that whenever he's tempted, he starts singing the doxology. What a great tool to use in the midst of temptation. Here, right up front, is a widescreen TV, the big IMAX of hell. The motivation here before us is the horror of hell. Indeed, we heard it once, go to hell. We heard it twice, thrown into hell. Hell, the Greek word for hell in verses 43, 45, and 47 is Gehenna, from which the Hinnon Valley, a steep ravine to the southwest of Jerusalem, where human sacrifice had been practiced under King Ahaz and Manasseh. That's where hell here gets its name. King Josiah turned it into a garbage dump. And in Jesus' day, that area, the Hinnon Valley, 
There's death and there's smoke and there's stench. And it's a symbol that's being used by the Jews of the day as a symbol of divine wrath, of punishment. And indeed, here we are reading this in the Christian scriptures as well. And it's serving that image. Graphic language. Graphic language is being used to describe hell. Now, think about with me for a moment some people's understanding of hell. A rather anemic, abstract idea of hell as being separation from God. My friends, that's not what the scriptures teach. God is absolutely present in hell, in his wrath. The graphic language of fire. It's an apt image. Fire disintegrates. Fire is painful. Sin, Jesus says, leads to fire. In other words, sin leads to disintegration and misery. We know that if any of you have been burned, have been in a house fire, you know that's true. And Jesus is saying that that will be true forever as well. Misery. Fire? A literal fire? Well, good news, friends. Language here probably is surely metaphorical because real fire consumes its fuel and goes out. But this fire can't die. And so we're not talking about a physical fire. But the bad news is that this metaphor is referring to something obviously much worse than physical fire. Spiritual disintegration and misery. Truly, the reality is much worse than the image. And I could not help in thinking through this of those people in the two twin towers on September 11th that knew they were going to die, but they did not want to die by burning. They jumped to their death because it wouldn't be as bad. Notice the contrast here being set up between hell versus life in verses 43 and 45. And hell versus the kingdom of God in verse 47. Three times Jesus says that sin leads to hell. There is no equivocation on the part of Jesus here. Jesus is not wishy-washy. He's not having a loophole. He's not, he cannot be more clear that he is here. Hell is the terrible, humanly unavoidable consequence of sin. It is everlasting and it is infinite. We are reminded of those Jesus spoke of who are guilty of an eternal sin in chapter 3. Earlier in our Old Testament reading, the last few verses of Isaiah 66 Isaiah 66 concludes two chapters of promise and salvation by a forceful warning of the consequences of rebellion against God. And my friends, those of you that have been walking with Jesus know that one of the ways he sustains us and grows us in our faith is through warnings. Because it's through the warnings that we run to Jesus all the more rapidly. It's through the warnings that we, we look in the mirror briefly and see our lives and look ten times more at Jesus. 
The warnings are part of the Christian life. The doctrine of hell is declared by Jesus himself. Now, some people you may know, in fact, you at one time or another may believe that Jesus' use of the doctrine of hell is harsh and unappealing. But think about this. If I don't know about hell, I don't know what Jesus took for me at the cross. If I don't know about the magnitude of the penalty and the debt, I don't know what Jesus has done for me. Therefore, and ironically, without a belief, a firm belief in the absolute certainty of hell, we can't know the depth of Jesus' love for us. If you and I deny the doctrine of hell to make God somehow more loving, we actually make him less loving. You have lost the biblical truth that Jesus experienced hell itself for us. And he did so voluntarily. The seriousness of sin. The horror of hell. And notice in those verses from 43 to 48, Jesus weaves in and out from sin to hell, from sin to hell, from sin to hell. Verses 49 and 50, these last two verses in Mark 9, puzzle most, if not all, commentators. And I would imagine they puzzle you as well, and they certainly have puzzled me. However, in the context of our passage, here's what I believe they mean and why Mark includes them here. So let's look now at the blessing of salt and peace. We read in 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. Jesus has been talking about fire and now he wants to get to salt and so he starts with fire again. Salt, the fire of purification. It's another fire here that Jesus speaks, and it's not the unquenchable fire of hell that is to be avoided. Rather, it's the fire of purification that is to be embraced. You see, in the Old Testament, the sacrifices made in the temple were seasoned with salt. Jesus seems to be saying here that we offer our lives to Christ we too will become like those sacrifices, as Paul indeed writes in Romans chapter 12. But here it would be seasoned with fire, not salt. The fire that will purge away the dross of our lives. The fire that will purge away the sin. Have you ever noticed that in the difficulties and the trials of which James and First and Peter write so clearly, have you noticed that when the heat is on, we are desperate for the Lord? We are suffering and we are in pain and misery. But as we know, the trials are ultimately good for God's people and they point, they point as we just sang, away from the things of earthly joy and point us to the one who truly satisfies. Because through the trials, our faith will emerge tested and purified for God's glory. But here's another word association. Salt, the salt of consecration. Salt is a basic commodity essential to life itself. It's a value, many of you know, as a preservative to food. Jesus says in the first part of verse 50, 
have salt in yourselves. Have salt in yourselves. The point being that if unless we maintain the purity of our own lives by fighting sin and are being purified by the fire of testing, our lives will have no preserving influence, especially influence in the lives of others. Because Jesus says to conclude, not just have salt in yourselves, but also and be at peace with one another. Now, is this an anti-climax? Is this a non-sequitur? Well, not at all. Rather, it's the appropriate climax to Jesus' teaching throughout the majority of chapter 9. Jesus' warning in verses 43 through 48 is a scathing attack on our pride because in our pride we fight for position and we refuse to recognize other Christians and so we refuse to recognize Christ. One commentator looking at this, be at peace with one another, writes this. It is precisely in the ability of Christians to love one another truly and humbly from the heart that the community of believers is distinguished from the backbiting and back-scratching communities of the world. Yes, Siri, that hymn is true. They will know we are Christians by our love. John 13, 34, and 35. Because being at peace with one another is a reflection of the God-given peace that we have first received from Jesus Christ. It's the powerful witness of a true Christian fellowship. They had been jockeying for position. They had been putting down someone else. And Jesus says, if you're going to fight, fight sin. So what does Jesus think about sin and hell? We've now heard and seen what Jesus thinks about sin and hell. He speaks of the seriousness of sin, the severity of sin, and the horror of hell. The absolute terror and horror of hell. These are the questions that we face in this passage, and these are the questions that you and I must answer to go back to the very beginning, what do you think about sin? What do you think about hell? Is sin serious in your thinking? Is hell horrible in your thinking? Well, let's remind ourselves as we wrap up, to whom is Jesus speaking? Who is Mark writing? Jesus is speaking to his followers, his disciples, Mark is writing to the first century church, most likely Gentile Christians in and around Rome. Our passage, in other words, is addressed to those who are following Jesus. Our passage is a call to fight sin, and only followers of Christ fight sin. It's only when we aim at the complete eradication of sin that we are likely to have any success against its influence. 
We're faced with two alternatives, Jesus is saying. We either kill sin or it will eventually kill us. If we do not engage in the effort to conquer it, it may be, we may be sure that it will conquer us. Sin must be discarded promptly and decisively, even as a surgeon amputates a limb in order to save a life. My friends, are you struggling with sin right now? You know, most of the time when I'm with somebody and it's maybe a one-on-one situation and the man will look down and say, yeah, I'm struggling with sin. My friends, look up. I am struggling with sin. Praise God. Non-believers don't struggle with sin. They don't have a reason to. My friend, if you are struggling with sin right now, be encouraged and look to God for the resources, the means of grace to fight sin. Look around. This place is filled with people who would love to come alongside you and not judge you and come alongside and go, well, how could you do that? How could you do that? Look in the mirror. We can all do that. If you are struggling with sin, Hear it now. Great. Keep it up. It's a sign of life. Remember back in Mark 1, 14 and 15, Jesus comes on the scene and says, the kingdom of God is at hand. What? Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel which is the solution to this humanly impossible situation. Earlier, we saw that although we are called to take drastic action in view of our sin, we saw that our action is not enough. We can be a one-eyed, one-handed, one-legged rebel against the Lord. We are placed, in other words, even with this kind of amputation, We are placed in a humanly impossible situation. And my friends, that is exactly where Jesus wants his disciples to be. That is exactly what Jesus wants his disciples to recognize. Because when we do, we first cry out with a question. Who can deliver me from my sin and its everlasting consequence? And Stan, thank you for leading into that as you took us back to Romans, where Paul says, who can deliver me? We ask that question, and then by God's grace, we call out for rescue. It is in the gospel alone that the questions of sin and hell are rightly addressed. The gospel is God's solution to the humanly impossible situation of needing A new heart. And my friends, God is in the business of giving us what we could never attain through our own efforts. That being a new heart. In just a moment, we are going to sing hymn number 472. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched. And here's verse number four. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. This he gives you, this he gives you, tis the Spirit's 
rising beam. Tis the Spirit's rising beam. May God be pleased to give us what we need. And may he be pleased to use his Holy Spirit to humble us, all of us, to the place where we will recognize our need and cry out to him for rescue. Because as we will also sing, he is able, he is willing, doubt no more. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us the mind of Christ when it comes to sin and hell. And Father, we thank you that you use a variety of tools in your toolbox to motivate us to live a life of putting sin to death and pursuing holiness and righteousness. And Father, though we are initially repelled by the thoughts of sin and hell, we see that Jesus' direct words, though hard, they are true, and they are life-giving. So Father, would you enable us to really realize that hell is absolutely horrible, and the image, the reality, is going to be much worse than the image pictured even in your word. So Father, help us to cling to Christ, knowing that he went to hell for us in our place and on our behalf, and yet he has been raised from the dead and is now ascended into heaven and seated at your right hand. Oh, Father, enable us, your struggling, weak people, to walk by faith and not by sight. For we pray and trust in Jesus' name. Amen.